And uh, would you please open up your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 25, where we will be concluding the section of scripture called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 25. If you remember, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem the week of his crucifixion. I know that's hard to remember because we've been in Matthew 25 forever, 24, 25. But if you go to Matthew 23, you find out that's where he is. Uh, but Jesus is, it's the final week of his life and Jesus is in Jerusalem. Well, in the area of Jerusalem there, and he's leaving the city. And as he's leaving the city, he tells his disciples, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples are absolutely astonished. They're blown away. And so, and so as they make their way out of Jerusalem, up onto the hill next to Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives off the East gate, some of his disciples come to him privately and start to ask him, Hey, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming into your kingdom? And Jesus begins in chapter 24 and 25 to teach his disciples about his coming into his kingdom, which we know is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we've already gone through the signs that Jesus said would precede his second coming. Clayton, could you turn up my voice just a little bit? Thank you. The signs that would precede his second coming 20 uh, in chapter 24 verses uh, three through 31. Those are the signs that Jesus said would precede his coming as well as the timing of his return. Jesus speaks about that in chapter 24 verses 29 through 35, uh, which will be immediately after the tribulation, the seven years leading up to his return. And that's in 24, 29. He says that. Yet Jesus said, no one knows the day of his hour. We know it's at the end of the tribulation, but we don't know the day nor the hour. And so anyone who says they know the day or the hour, don't listen to them. That's a pretty good takeaway, right? And then we spent the last several weeks covering what Jesus then goes on to be the emphasis of all this, not necessarily all the signs leading up to, but how then shall we live in light of his return? If we're believers, how do we believe In the midst of all this. And so there will be believers on the earth preceding his return. And this is what we went over in chapters 24, 36 through chapters 25, verse 30. Last week we finished and, and over and over and over, Jesus is painting pictures with parables and stories about you will either be in one of two camps uh, when he comes And he describes those two camps of people that will be found on the earth. When he comes, the people either, either one will be found uh, by the Lord of having faith in him. And that faith is is shown by being spiritually awake, being ready and faithful and prepared and wise and filled with this Holy spirit and about the work he has given us to do that pictures the life of a believer, someone who believes in Jesus or the other camp, the second camp, those who, uh, when Jesus returns, they'll be found by him to be unbelieving, spiritually asleep, unfaithful, foolish, and unprepared. And to the believer rewards and entering the kingdom to the unbeliever judgment and hell awaits. That's Jesus's. That's Jesus's message to chapter 24 and 25. And so Jesus keeps painting that picture over and over. It's like, why are you belaboring it, Matt? Well, don't blame me, blame Jesus. He keeps wanting us to know, like if he keeps repeating something, it's pretty important. And he keeps saying in different ways, Hey, be awake, be ready, be, be at work. Right. 
And so this is where we pick up this morning in chapter five, uh, 25, verse 31. It's the actual judgment when he returns. That's where we pick up. So if you came here expecting uh, light and fluffy, that's not the situation. Chapter 25, verse 31. Picking up in verse 31, it says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now we've already gone over uh, the return of Jesus, but just to set up the scenario that will help us understand the scene, open your Bibles to chapter Matthew, chapter 24 verses 29 through 31, just to give you a picture of what it's like when Jesus returns The earth has gone through seven years, basically of hell on earth. Most of the population of the earth has been decimated, decimated. All the, the, the sea life is dead. Most of the plant vegetation's gone. The sky is dark. The, The moon is dim. There's astronomical things happening. Asteroids falling into the earth. It is a horrible, horrible situation. Darkness is covering the earth. In, in verse 29 of Matthew 24, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken uh, of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven, the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So that's one picture that Jesus gives of his return. What it will be like this darkness that we're, the world is in all of a sudden the heavens open glorious light radiating on the earth as the king of glory descends to the earth once again with it, with the armies of his angels with him and the saints. And he is coming to take the earth by force and to set up his kingdom. First time he came on a donkey, a symbol of peace. Next time he's coming on his horse. And that's the next picture we have revelation 19 flip over to revelation 19 verse 11, the end of your Bible revelation 19, 11. This is John, the apostle who has been given a vision of the day of the Lord. Revelation 19:11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped or sprinkled with blood. And by the name uh, which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white, white linen, white and purple, uh, white and purple, white and pure. We're flowing on, uh, we're flowing yeah, we're flowing him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which was to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God almighty. Uh, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord and Lord, Lord of Lords. Forgive me my reading there. Having a fire fog day. 
But again, the Lord Jesus and his angels are coming and notice it's not your flannel graph. Jesus. We love flannel, flannel graph Jesus and we long for the mercy, but this is Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead. This is what he's doing. He's returning physically to this earth. Jesus is coming back to this earth. It's happening. It's, it's coming. The world can't stop it. He's going to break in and come down and there is going to be a, an opening of the dimension of heaven that this earth has never seen. And he will come down in force with his angels, its army, so to speak, and take the earth, take possession of the earth as described in revelation. Obviously Jude, Jude, we always say to open to Jude chapter one. They're only in, this is only one chapter in Jude. So Jude verses 14 through 15. Jude says it this way, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, What's the operative word there? What was that? ungodly over and over and over the Lord's coming to execute judgment on the ungodly. And so at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returning to the earth in judgment to set up his kingdom. And he comes in great glory, a light in the darkness. As we described the heavens opening, Jesus descending multitudes of angels are with him. The world is weeping. And those of us who already died and bleed with him are with him. And possibly those who are, who are raptured and Jesus appears and devout devours the Kings and the armies that are remain and are gathered together against him. He just speaks a word and they're gone. And he touches down on the Mount of olives. Zechariah 14, four says when he touches down on the Mount of olives, it splits and creates a great, chasm like with two sides and he sets up his rule in Jerusalem where he's going to rule on earth with believers by his side for a thousand years. And his first order of business is to clean house. That's what he's doing. He said he would do it. You know, we forget the re you know, we've got such a weird theology regarding Jesus. His very name means God saves. Saves from what? From God, his wrath, right? Like saves him from what we all deserve, what I deserve. It's like, yeah, pastor appreciation. Thank you. But Jesus appreciation. Amen. (laughs) All the time, every day, all month, all year, whole life. Praise God. You know, and, and so he comes up and this is the first thing he's going to do is judge Now judgment's going to take place over about a 45 day period upon Jesus return. He's going to spend the first 30 days rebuilding Jerusalem. You're like, how can, how can that be? You know, I mean, we just submitted our permits and they won't even be approved for probably four to six months. You know, how's that going to happen? New government, (laughs) right? New government, right? Jesus is just supernatural uh, fixing Jerusalem. It's going to happen in 30 days. And, and then there's a 45 day window of judgment, which is called the judgment of the nations. And by the way, I've got a little 
I, I set a, like 10 copies of a paper back there that talk about the timing of Daniel and revelation. It talks about this, this first few 75 days of Jesus's return. What's going to happen during that time. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but for 45 days, Jesus is going to judge the nations, the world, the rest of the world. The ones that are left are going to be brought before him. According to Daniel 12, 11 through 12 and revelation 11, three. See the handout. And it seems that this judgment, which is often called the judgment of the nations, is of those who survived the great tribulation. Both believers and unbelievers, they're going to be brought before Christ. The ones who remain on the earth. And he will, the purpose of of the judgment is to see who of those will enter his kingdom on earth. That does that make sense? Now, this judgment is not to be mistaken with the judgment at the end of the book of Revelation called the great white throne judgment. That judgment takes place in heaven. That that judgment takes place when everybody's done. You know, it's the judgment of the unbelieving dead, the great white throne judgment. You can read about that as you track along in Revelation 2021. 20, I think it's at the end of 20. And so actually revelation 21, 11 through 15. And that judgment is the final judgment that takes place in heaven. This takes place on earth in Jerusalem that begins his earthly reign. So the great white throne is at the end of the thousand year reign on earth. This is at the beginning of his earthly reign. And it is of the, is for those believers and unbelievers that have survived the tribulation. And it's a prelude, by the way, to, to that final judgment. It's a picture of it, by the way. Now, some believe that this is where believers appear before the judgment seat of Christ and are rewarded. Some take, some take that view uh, that this, that this is where we are judged before the Lord as he sets up his kingdom. Um, uh, and, And that very well could could take place that very well could be a scenario. Others put it, put that judgment of the believers at the beginning of the tribulation where we are raptured and we are with the Lord. And this is what I'm praying that we're before the Bema seat of Christ, the mercy seat of Christ. uh, And we're hanging out with the Lord for seven years. I mean, that would be super awesome. That's a possibility. And regardless, this is what we need to know. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is super important. Paul says this in second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. Now, now therefore uh, he says now for, he says, basically we're going to sit, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ judgment seat of Christ. By the way, the word for judgment there is Bema, which often people associate with the word mercy. And the idea behind it is, is associated with the Greek games. And that's the idea there And the Greek games is that those who compete are rewarded according to how they competed at the end. It's not a time for uh, punishment, rather a time for rewards. And so we as believers, when we are brought before the judgment seat of Christ, we are judged not 
as unbelievers, but in light of the cross. Does that make sense? It's very important to know that he took our punishment for us. Nevertheless, we will be judged, Paul said, according to what we have done in our body. And Paul explains in a different place what that's like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, Paul speaks of our judgment before Christ in a different way as Christians. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. What does that mean? In other words, how you have lived as a Christian, how you have applied your faith, what you have done with what God has given you, you're going to be held accountable to. And that day will prove it. What's he talking about for that day? will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, Pray that your work survives. What will happen? He will receive a reward. God will reward you. He's not going to reward you for nonsense. He's going to reward you for faithfulness, right? That's the parable of the talents. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. Your lamp was ready. You've been living your life for the Lord. He's going to reward you for that. And by the way, we find out that he's working in and through us. So as we yield to him, he's going to reward us. It's amazing. But he says, on the other hand, if anyone's work is burned up, how many of us have gone, man, I have squandered so much. Well, the Lord's going to bring you before his throne and he sees it. He sees all of it. And he's going to burn that up. He's going to expose it for what it is and who you've been. You're like, oh, that's terrifying. He's like, yeah, that's Paul's point of writing this. But if anyone's work is burned up, what will happen? He will suffer loss. You aren't rewarded. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. How does that sit with you? So we have to have a right understanding of God's grace. We have to have a right understanding of salvation. We have a right, have a right understanding of what it means to have faith in Christ. And that's what this whole thing is challenging to us. Are we saved by grace through faith? Absolutely. We are. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us. Amen. Amen. But how we spend eternity and how that will be wrought about will be will be rewarded based upon our response to his grace. And I don't understand how all that works, but I nevertheless, here it is. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So as to this judgment in Matthew 25, is this when our judgment takes place? I don't know but it will, <laughs> right? That's the important thing. Make sense. I don't know. You know, theologians will sit here and tell you exactly, you know, a lot of people do see it differently. We're all going to stand before them, but for sure, we know absolutely that believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ at this judgment and non-believers. And we believe, at least I believe, as I'm studying through this, that these are those who are alive and remain. I don't want to mix you up with that 
Thessalonians verse, but those who have survived the tribulation, those who are alive, Jesus is going to judge them. Who's going to enter his physical rule and reign there on earth. So it says in verse 32, before him will be gathered back in Matthew 25, 32, but before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, shepherd separates sheep from the goat. And so the word for nations is ethnos there. And it's just talking about people. Jesus is going to bring people before his throne. This is what he's talking about. And as the nations are brought before him over that 45 day period, he is going to separate sheep from goats. And if you've been following on, this is the culmination of all the pictures that Jesus has been talking about, right? Like in the pictures of the day of Noah, there are those in the ark and those outside of the ark, right? Um, Jesus said the two men will be taken, two men will be in the field working. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding the millstone. One will be taken. One will be left. This is this imagery over and over and over. The idea here is one saved, one's judged or the picture of the master of the household who wasn't ready. And the thief came in and broke into his house. Jesus came at a time. He was not aware or the servant who was wise and aware and awake. And the, or the servant that was, that was going on. Oh, my master's taken forever. And he went, began to beat his servants, get drunk and do all these things. So Jesus keeps painting these pictures of either you're one or the other, the parable of the two of, of the virgins, the five wise, the five who were unwise, the five who were saved and filled with the spirit evidenced by what they were doing, their preparedness and the five who were not. And when Jesus came, it was too late. Just like when the door shut on the ark, it was too late. Make sense. And so Jesus has been painting the picture of these two camps of how each of them proved who they were by what they did. And now we see the judgment of the nations here where Jesus says in verse 32, that he will separate people one from another as sheep from goats. And the disciples understood this picture because the sheep and the goats would get all mixed up as shepherds would have their flocks out there of all these types of animals. And at the end of the day, the shepherd would separate out the sheep from the goats and put them in their pens. This is a picture. The sheep are a picture of believers. The goats are a picture of non-believers. Jesus is using a picture from every day. So everybody would understand. If you remember in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat after the parable, of the sower, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, Jesus says there's, there's two types of crops intermingling at the same time. And Jesus says, this is a picture of believers and unbelievers. And he says at the end of the age, what's going to happen there, the angels are going to come and they're going to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. The, the wheat's going to be brought into his barn, into the kingdom, into his presence. And the chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. This is same imagery over and over and over that Jesus is using. And he doesn't quit here. And so in verse 33, he says he will place his sheep on his right, but the goats on his left, the right being a place of honor left being a place of dishonor. That's the picture there. I don't want to get into the old Testament imagery of that, but that's kind of what you have there. Verse 34. And then the King will say to those on his right, the sheep come, you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Now you must remember that the context here is that Jesus is speaking to his sheep and 
In this passage, they seem to be the believers who survived the tribulation. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that as they were the ones who were starving because they would not take the mark. They were unable to buy or sell. They were being hunted down by the beast, by the world system. The Holy spirit has withdrawn his protection in sin is just running rampant over the world. And the wrath of God is being poured out and believers are in the midst of this. That's what's going on. The beast has made war against them. He's hunting believers down. Many of them had already been executed. Obviously, perhaps many of these were imprisoned and waiting execution when the Lord returned and their hope appeared just as he said he would. The sky tore open on that day. And their hope descended and touched down in Jerusalem and the world changed. And here they were bone thin, worn out, standing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's sitting there and his glory is radiating in front of them. And Jesus who knew all, and knows all who saw everything they'd been through and saw their faithfulness through the whole ordeal and their perseverance in their love for him. He saw it all. And one after another, as the nations are brought before him, he calls the sheep to his right. This is you come, you come, you come. 45 days calling them out and he speaks to them and he calls them saying, come, come into my kingdom. And notice that Jesus calls them blessed by my father. Come you who are blessed by my father. They were cursed by men. They were the scourge of the earth because of their association with Jesus. But in reality, Jesus says, no, you're blessed by my father. And he tells them, come and inherit the kingdom. Peter talks about this, but a kingdom that is preserved by God, unshakable, unperishable, can't be taken, can't be broken into kept by faith kept by God. And he tells them, come and inherit the kingdom, his kingdom, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords come and inherit this kingdom. My kingdom is your kingdom. Pretty wild. My kingdom is your kingdom. The rule they longed for was finally there. The one that they were longing for was in front of them. He is theirs. And They are his come. This is yours. Enter. And Jesus tells them that the kingdom was prepared for them. Not in 30 days, but before the foundations of the earth prepared for them before 
the foundations of the earth. This is God speak. This is a dimension we really don't understand. And we fight about this stuff. Lean into it, accept it. When God says he prepared it before you, before the foundations of the earth, he means it. It's just above your pay grade, above my pay grade. He knows what he was doing. He knew in his mind, the kingdom he was preparing before believers came into existence. Only God can understand these things fully. I believe maybe he'll give us that ultra that other dimensional understanding. Once we get there and he tells them why they can enter. That's important. A judge actually explaining what's happening and why you can enter. It's important. And here he is. He judges and he has reasons for his judgment on them. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. These are Jesus reasons for letting them in. Again, the immediate context of this are those who have just went through the tribulation. Hope that helps a little bit. Jesus said, be awake. And they were awake. Jesus said, be ready. They were ready. Jesus said, be wise. And they were wise. Jesus said, be faithful. They were faithful. Jesus saw them all living out their faith in him during the hardest of times. How? Jesus said, you fed me. You gave me drink. You welcomed me. You clothed me. You visited me when I was sick and you came to me when I was prison. And and here's their response. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him. Notice they're righteous, right with God. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I said to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When the world was making it so believers could not buy or sell without the mark. Other believers saw those believers starving and they gave them food. They gave them drink. This is the immediate application, right? And believers were suffering because of all that as well from the wars and the famine and everything that was going on in earth on earth, the pestilence and the earthquakes. And these believers gave the believers, those who were hungry and thirsty food and drink. When the world took the homes of believers, when they confiscated their possessions, when they lost all they had, their assets were seized. Their funding was cut off. Their bank accounts were frozen their credit score, their social credit score didn't match what the world wanted and all that good stuff. Other believers saw them hurting and welcomed them into their homes. Said, my home is your home. You come to my house. When the world made sure that believers were destitute, 
that they were naked and cold. These believers saw them and gave them their own clothes and made sure they were warm and clothed and taken care of when believers were sick through malnutrition and disease because of the hardships of what man had brought on the earth and everything that was going on. Believers came to them and helped them. When believers were imprisoned because of their faith, like Paul, Paul said at the end of his life, everybody's left me. Only a few have come and he's writing to those who came Mark of all people who abandoned him at first. And Paul didn't want to have anything to do with him at the end of his life. Mark had grown up in the Lord and he was there with him. He's writing to Timothy saying, everybody's gone. Demas having loved this present world went off to do his thing. I'm alone here in prison. In other places, he, uh, commends those believers who came would visit him risking their own lives by associating with him. That's what was going on here. When believers were imprisoned because of Jesus, these believers visited them to encourage them and comfort them at the risk of their own lives. Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, that is my brothers and sisters in the Greek, you did it to me. You were doing that to me. And this should send shock waves through us that when we love and minister to one another as believers, this is not talking about the world, although God's love extends beyond. This is talking about in house. It starts here. It starts in the room. It starts with those who say you're believers that when we love and minister to one another as believers, Jesus takes it personally. Jesus says to them, you did it to me. Jesus is watching church. And all these good works that Jesus is describing here and by no means is, is an, an exhaustive list. You know, like when, was it uh, James says, this is pure and undefiled religion to orphan you know, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, right? That's not an exhaustive list. It's a heart that encompasses true faith. It's a faith that gives without reward. So to speak at the, at sacrifice, sacrificial love. All these good works that Jesus is describing here are the evidence that these people believed in Jesus and they loved him no matter what. It's the evidence of their faith. That's really important. Don't get the cart before the the horse or whatever the term is. Their faith was shown in their love for one another. John 15, 12, 14. If you love me, you'll obey my command. And this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. It's the proof. They loved one another. They were awake. They were ready. They were working. Jesus was watching. And for their faith in the Lord, they're blessed of the father. They enter the kingdom, his earthly kingdom. You shall know a tree by its fruit. 
Now, what about the goats? Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Verse 41. You cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels to the sheep. Jesus says, come to the goats. He says, depart. Jesus commands them to depart from his judgment from him. This is Jesus's judgment. Notice in contrast to the sheep, Jesus calls the goats. What? Not blessed, but what? Cursed. And in contrast to entering the kingdom, Jesus commands them to depart from him into eternal fire. Prepared for what? The devil and his angels, right? Jesus sends them to hell. Not a popular message. Nevertheless, this is your Jesus. This is my Jesus. Now, some will say that Jesus is saying that they don't stay there, but get annihilated because the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for people. No, this is parallelism. Look, the kingdom was prepared for who? Before the foundations of the earth is prepared for you who believe in Jesus. The kingdom is Jesus's and those who follow him and believe in him. The kingdom is prepared for them. Hell is prepared for the devil and the angels and those who follow him. That's the parallel there. You see it? Hell is filled with Satan and the devil and all those who follow him. How do you follow Satan? You reject Christ. You're in one camp or the other. And notice the fire is temporary. What's the word he uses? Eternal. Those who go there will be there forever. When we get to the last verse of chapter 25, you can cheat and go ahead. Jesus makes that point again. But Jesus tells them why they must depart. Just like he told them why they would enter the sheep, why they would enter. Now he tells them why they would depart for verse 42. For I was hungry and you gave me what? No food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. The same standard for both of judgment. Who they are is shown by what they did in their lives. You will know a tree by its fruit. Just like all the parables that Jesus gave so far, verse 44. Then also they will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And again, you know, they're saying we never saw you just like the sheep. But verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it into to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Indifference is not an excuse. Perhaps some of these people were indifferent. They just stayed neutral. Jesus said, you chose who you are was shown by what you did and or did not do. Remember the parable of the talent? He did nothing with it and he put it in the ground. The parable of the foolish virgins. They were unwise. They were not prepared. So perhaps some of them actually were the ones persecuting, but Jesus here, it seems that he's saying, listen, you did nothing. 
Regardless, Jesus's judgment of them was based upon their lives, what their lives proved. You didn't believe in me because it would have been shown by what you did to them. James chapter two, 14 through 28 is in harmony with the Lord here. James is concerned when he's writing to a group of believers, maybe, or supposed believers. James is concerned by religious people saying that faith alone in Christ saves them. Before you go heretic, hear me out. This is why Martin Luther didn't like James. But James is concerned that religious people are saying, I have faith in Christ. And that saves me. James wants to make sure that their faith is biblical faith. Like we say the word love. Oh, love is love is love. And you know, how could a God of love? You don't know what God's love is because his love is not separated from his truth. It's accordance to, so is faith. It has a context to faith. There's a context to faith. It's not what we hear necessarily with our evangelical ears. When we hear faith, James is concerned. He wants to make sure they have a biblical, a true understanding of faith. In other words, a faith that is not dead. It's not hypocritical. It's not empty. James says faith without works is dead. We got a problem because Paul said you're saved by grace through faith. Alone, right? And that's the mantra of the Reformation. So are these two people at odds? James says in chapter 2, 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's a great question. I'm a believer. I love Jesus. I have faith. Can that faith save you if you don't have works? Great question. We've heard it time and time again. The words of Paul, again, with our our evangelical ears, we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. And to that, I would say, amen. If you have the right understanding, amen. That is Paul in Ephesians two, by the way, you want to study that Ephesians chapter two, but is the faith Paul describing here in Ephesians two, a dead faith? We should all say what? No, he's not talking about a wishy-washy faith. He's talking about a faith with substance as well. A faith that believes on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but a faith that proves itself that it's real. How do we know that? Because after Paul says you're saved by grace through faith, just skip down to verse 10. And what does he say in Ephesians two? For we are all his workmanship created in Christ Jesus that is born again, through faith in Christ, by God's grace alone, not our works. We didn't get saved because of the law. None of that stuff. But guess what? When he saved us, there should be a proof. There should be a proof. The Holy Spirit is the seal and he is working in us. Christ likeness makes sense. And he says here, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That means we're new creation. This is talking about regeneration. We're created for what? Good works that were prepared for us. When? Before the foundations of the world that we should walk in them. God saved you to walk 
as Jesus walked. That's the proof. Amen. So this is what, so James and Paul are saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. If you're a believer, let me tell you, it's shown by how you live. That is what faith is. You believe Jesus and he is in you and it's the fruit shows it. Make sense. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. We're being sanctified. But as we look unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, he shows his fruit, the fruit of the spirit and our character in our actions and all those things through us over time. Make sense. Hopefully. So James says in chapter two, verse 15, as he continues, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Does that remind you of anyone saying anything recently? They're reading about Jesus. You clothed me. You fed me. This is what James is talking about. We say to them, go in peace, you know, don't do anything about it. James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. And he goes on to talk about Abraham and other things. This is what Jesus is referring to. The sheep have real faith in me. And the evidence is that they're clothed. They clothed me when I was naked. They loved me and all these things. And so Jesus tells the goats on the other hand, depart from me cursed. Why? Because you didn't have faith. That's the essence of it. It's shown by who you are, that you're really not alive. And Jesus sees through all the minutia. And Jesus says in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same word for those two places, eternal. Eternal punishment, eternal life. The goats and the sheep. Jesus is the righteous judge. This is why Jesus keeps hammering the two camps over and over and over and over and over. So we cannot sit here as Christians immobile. We cannot sit here as Christians disobedient. We cannot sit here as professing Christians without love for one another and without obedience to Jesus, you know, and the the tension is okay. Now I get to manipulate you into being saved. Can't do that. Sorry. But if you believe there should be what fruit and how is that fruit manifested first and practically in our love for one another. What does that mean? How do you want to be loved? Jesus said, go and love people like you love yourself, which is pretty good. Go love them. Do you want to be naked? Do you want to be poor? Do you want to be clothed? Do you want to be put last? Do you want to be disregarded? Do you want to be, Dismissed. You know, and you've got talent that God has given you. 
Not me. You. What are you doing? What am I doing? Right? If we really, the chief end of a believer is not to go to church. It's to be the church. Amen. Now, if you just heard, yeah, I don't have to go to church. (laughs) Well, that brings some law on you. I'm just kidding. No, no law. What do believers do? We're around the one another's. Do you see the value in being under his word like this? Where I am under it with you. And we go, wow, that's our Lord Jesus. He's on the throne and, and we're all going to give an account. I have to give an account for communicating this to you. And, and you've got to have an, give an account for living it. And we have the opportunity now, the joyful opportunity to worship him with our lives. Right now, while our faith is yet sight. We haven't seen him face to face, but we will. Amen. So listen, Jesus uses this, this imagery of fire over and over and over gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and all these things. It's like, gosh, you know, I don't like the fear sale. Well, it's coming. It's coming. And so if that's you, if you've yet to receive Christ's mercy and grace, if you have yet to do it, now is the time. Jesus came and died to save you from that. His sacrifice was sufficient, totally sufficient. His blood was, is totally sufficient to wipe away all your sins before God. He is the only way and he offers you salvation right now. And how do you receive that? I just get good enough. You believe. What does believe mean? You surrender all that you are for all that he is, that he is Lord of your life and that he died for you. And he rose again. Simple Romans 10, nine through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice there's faith and an action for with the heart. One believes and is justified. That means made just as if you'd never sinned. And with the mouth, one confessed and is confesses and is saved. They work together for the scripture says, everyone who believes in, in him will not be put to shame. God is good on his word. You believe in Jesus. You're as saved as saved can be. And his spirit comes into you and changes you. And you learn to follow him and obey him day after day, like the rest of us. That's what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news. And so closing verse here, I know it's long, but this is the end of a huge section of scripture. Second Thessalonians one, five through 12, second Thessalonians one, five through 12. We're closing. I'm just going to read it. He says, this evidence, this is, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Paul is writing to people who are suffering for the kingdom. And this might be our future. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Well, when does that happen? Verse seven, middle of it, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who dis who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be glorified in you believers and to be marveled at among all who have believed we're going to be glorified and glorified in him. And, and he will be marveled at by all of us. We're going to marvel at Jesus Christ because our testimony to you was believed. And he says in verse 11 to this end, Paul says, I've got to pray. This is how I pray for you. He says to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Notice who makes you worthy of his calling. It is God. And may fulfill every, every resolve for good and every work of faith by whose power, by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is as awesome of a prayer as we can pray for one another you know, so let's, let's close in prayer. Amen. I'm going to paraphrase this as we go to this end. We pray father that you make us worthy of your calling and that you may fill, uh, fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him, according to your grace, father, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. If you have questions, please feel free to ask. If you need prayer, the elders and I are here for you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Go love one another.